Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. With healthcare costs in the United States rising, employers have been trying to find a way to get a handle on these costs by improving employee health and well being. Workplace wellness programs have been around for decades, but they received a boost in 2010 with the Affordable Care Act allowing companies to offer financial incentives to get employees to participate in the programs. However, the research on these wellness programs has been mixed, to say the least, with more recent research finding that these programs don't really work. But more than just the unclear health benefits of these programs, there are real data and privacy concerns for employees. We'll discuss the privacy issue later with Dr. Deborah Peel, but first we speak with Al Lewis, a famed opponent of the Workplace Wellness Program, to get his insight on just why he's so confident these programs don't work. And how confident is he? Confident enough to put his money where his mouth is. Al Lewis is the founder of Quizify, a trivia-style quiz that provides employees with the knowledge they need to make wiser, healthier decisions. Today, we're discussing workplace wellness programs, which Al has written about extensively. Thank you for joining me, Al. Thank you for having me, Laura. Great. So the first things first, to be completely upfront about it, you're not a fan of workplace wellness programs, correct? I am not a fan of traditional work, conventional workplace wellness programs, wellness done to employees instead of for them, which mm-hmm. is about 90% of all uh, 90% of all programs and 100% of all controversy. So uh, before we get into those details uh, with the wellness programs, let's just start with some background on them. Uh, what is the goal of these programs? Why did they start gaining popularity? Uh, Well, the goal is to uh, improve people's health and to save money by doing so. On paper, it seems very logical. And in fact, uh, if you really were to go back and read all of my stuff that I've ever written, you'd find I actually used to believe that these things worked. Um, And they started gaining popularity because they have this, this apparent faith validity. The popularity was turbocharged. Uh, by two things around the time of the Affordable Care Act. One was the Affordable Care Act itself that allowed employers to um, essentially get around the Affordable Care Act by part of it, by uh, by withholding up to 30% of the premium. And the second was around that same time, there was a uh, since, since invalidated, subsequently invalidated study uh, in health affairs that showed a, a very definitive uh, 3.27 to 1 ROI that has been cited, uh, I think, seven or 800 times since then in the academic literature alone as justification for the industry. And so what is the actual data behind these programs? You said that there's this one that has great data, but in general, as these have been studied, what is the overall sort of picture of, of what their outcomes are? Well, in the last six years, there has not been a single published outcome or a single outcome reported by a vendor in sufficient detail to win a Coop Award, for example, that has not easily been invalidatable on its face. In fact, there's a saying in wellness that in wellness, you don't have to challenge the data to invalidate it. You merely have to read the data and it will invalidate itself. Recently, the National Bureau of Economic Research published the first ever randomized control study of a wellness program. 
You recently wrote a contributor article for AJMC.com where you called the findings of this study, quote, an existential threat to conventional wellness programs. So why is that? Let's look under the hood a little bit. What did the study find? Okay, well, there were, there were actually two pieces to the study. The first was the one that got the headlines, which was that they did the first ever controlled study where they actually, um, you know, they did it validly as opposed to just separating participants from non-participants. Although that has been done in the past accidentally, and we'll get to that in a little while. But when they did it validly, they found that there were zero savings, not just zero savings in the first year, but zero, essentially zero impact on behavior in the first year. And they also said there was nothing in the first year that suggested that the second year was going to be any different. So you have the first ever controlled study saying this, but but the two things are actually more important than this. Both were are uh, elaborated upon in the uh, in the article. One was that they it actually didn't just say that the wellness program they did lost money. They actually invalidated the entire participants versus non-participants methodology upon which the entire industry is based, and they did it in this controlled setting. If you go back to something I wrote um, just about exactly a year ago, you find that I also invalidated participants versus non-participants methodology using a, a totally different approach, whereas they did it bottoms up using a controlled study. I did it observationally, looking at three studies in which you could benchmark the participants versus non-participants result against a result that you knew to be the case. To elaborate, uh, there was one study that was, um, I believe it was Health Fitness Corp and Eastman Chemical and won a Cooper Award, as many invalid studies do, uh, that showed dramatic separation, positive separation, favorable separation between participants and non-participants over the first 24 months uh, from the beginning of the measurement. The problem and the benchmark was that the study didn't actually start until 24 months after the separation. So the first two years of separation showing dramatic savings in favor of the participants couldn't possibly have been due to the study because the study didn't exist. And then the second one, and that one I think I mentioned in the, uh, in the uh, AJMC uh, blog, the second one was a study in which they put diabetics on a low-fat diet and found dramatic savings in the first six to 12 months. But besides the mathematical impossibility of that, you're not supposed to put diabetics on a low-fat diet. We learned that since then. So you can't attribute savings if you do something that's actually going to make your costs go up. You can't attribute savings to it. So the, the, if you took the, the ones that I did observationally and are completely confirmed by the, the study that these folks did, uh, using a RCT, you get precisely the same result. What makes theirs especially compelling is that the person who ran the study, the principal investigator of the study, an associate professor at the uh, Harris School of Public Health at the University of Chicago, uh, is actually a subordinate of the person, uh, Catherine Baker, who wrote the initial 3.27 to 1 ROI. So it's got to be a little bit embarrassing to have your subordinate completely invalidate one of your signature pieces of work. So this study may have sort of 
invalidated this methodology and it's a threat to these conventional wellness programs, but there are people and companies that are big fans of them. For example, Johnson & Johnson has run a wellness program since 1995. And in 2010, the Harvard Business Review reported that its wellness programs had saved the company an estimated $250 million on healthcare costs over the previous decade. So are they seeing something that you aren't? Are they running slightly different wellness programs that are not conventional and that they're doing it in the right way? Uh, no, actually, there are a couple of things about that. Um, that. That actually is the only study that I've ever seen that I can't just look at and say, oh, this is obviously wrong because this number is completely contradictory or this number. So this is not to say that study is valid. It's just it's not obviously invalid. But I would make two or three observations about it. Uh, first is that Johnson & Johnson actually used to you know, not hire smokers, fire smokers, that kind of thing. Uh, that's not something that everybody can do, especially in this uh, labor market. So it's not a question of you know, getting people to, to quit, which, which doesn't work. It's just a question of creating a, a culture where they're not, they're not welcome. So that was part of it. Another part of it is that, um, that they are in the business of selling wellness programs. So, of course, they're going to report uh, good outcomes. In fact, essentially every good outcome that's ever been reported in wellness, you can always trace it back to somebody who's got their finger in the uh, in the pot to collect money from uh, employers to run wellness programs. And the third thing is the amount of money at stake. Now, I did actually offer this to them about five or six years ago, and they declined. Uh, the amount of money at stake is greater than the total that they would have spent in the period in question on total heart attacks, uh, among people who have not uh, first heart attacks and total first diabetes events, which are the things that a wellness program could uh, could avoid, and I offered to go in and look at their ICD in those cases. In those days, it was ICD nines, and look at their hospital codes over time and tell them how much that they saved, and they turned me down. So what are the ethical concerns with workplace wellness programs? Obviously, in order for them to work, employers are going to need some sort of data on their employees. So what are the privacy concerns there? Well, some people have privacy concerns, and I, I don't want to uh, diminish their, those privacy concerns. I'm not an expert in it, but what I would say is that there's only been one major breach, which was uh, Stay Well. Um, they had their data breached. Now, whether you consider sharing your data with a health plan a violation of your privacy, that's, that's, a, that's a personal thing. And um, so I, I'm kind of neutral on that particular ethical concern. There, there are many other ethical concerns. In fact, there's a, a website called uh, ethicalwellness.org where uh, vendors of not just of wellness but of, of any, any employee health or wellness program can go and endorse it and say, and what they're doing by endorsing is they're, they're making a contractual representation, a marketing representation that they won't harm employees and that they'll report outcomes honestly. And yet only about a, a fifth of vendors have, uh, you know, have signed. The others have, have not. And they, uh, you know, they, they, they give wacky excuses for why they don't. But they're basically saying, we know that we, we lie on our outcomes and we know that our crash dieting contests and our flouting of, uh, of screening guidelines can harm employees. So we better not sign this or we're setting ourselves up for liability. So I would recommend to your listeners that they insist that their vendors 
sign the ethical code of con- ethical uh, wellness health and wellness code of conduct or give a really really good reason why they aren't and just how confident are you that workplace wellness programs the conventional workplace wellness programs don't work well it's this is not a he said she said anymore this is a he said and he's offering a 3 million dollar reward <laughs> okay so you can you can go to my website uh, they said what.net and just plug three million into the um, search box, and you'll see this reward. Uh, anybody who thinks that wellness has saved money in the last 15 years of this century can claim this reward. And there is an entry fee, but it's the reward is legally binding. There are there are rules for for how you enter, uh, how you present your your side, how I present my side. There's the judges. There are going to be five judges. I only get to pick one of them. Uh, you pick one of them off the master list of, of 500 uh, folks who are health policy experts. And two others are picked totally objectively. The uh, health economists who have the greatest uh, Twitter followings at any given time as measured by uh, ratio of following to follow, meaning it's, they're not, there are a lot of people who like follow people and they follow you. So you get tons of you know, like a hundred. No, it's people who get followed because they are so uh, prominent in this field. So we pick whoever happens to be the two highest, most followed uh, health economists. And those four judges then pick the fifth judge. So nothing could be fairer. Nothing could be more valid. And you can win $3 million. There is an entry fee, a 10% entry fee, 300,000, but you get that back. Um, So essentially you're basically saying by not by not t- uh, applying for this reward, you're saying, I don't have a one in 10 chance of convincing a panel of judges that wellness saves money. So that's the end of the debate. I mean, if these people really think they save money, they claim the reward. I've raised it twice. And I can't get, a, um, can't get any answer out of these folks. And so whose money is this? Who's putting this up? This isn't out of your own pocket. Oh, no, this is out of my own pocket. It's oh, out of your own me. pocket. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I thought for a second that, uh, and if you actually look at the rules, you'll see, um, you know, I have to I have to show before people put up the money. Uh, so, you know, I can't say, oh, sorry, I don't have it. A, a reward, by the way, is legally binding. You can look up the word reward in the in Black's Law Dictionary. It is a legally binding offer. So I can't, I can't wiggle out of it, nor do I want to wiggle out of it. I mean, if I thought for a second, a second, I was going to lose this huge sum of money, I wouldn't be offering the reward, would I? I, I would hope not. <laughs> no, no. And my wife would agree with you on that, trust me. <laughs> so if, well, if workplace wellness programs don't work, do you have other suggestions for how employers can get involved with addressing chronic disease? Uh, yes. Um, the, in, in fact, the, the way I got into this field was conversations exactly like ours with folks, and they would say, okay, I get it. This stuff doesn't work. What should we do instead? And I thought, you know, if I could only come up with an instead, I would have this great business model someday. And I never really was able to come up with an instead until one day, and it's, it's, a, it's probably too long a story for a, a podcast, but it's in my book, if anybody, it's page um, 72 of Cracking Health Costs. You'll see the story of my own uh, trip into the treatment trap, uh, into being dramatically overdiagnosed and potentially overtreated, and thinking, 
you know, if I have this much trouble navigating the healthcare system and I didn't know, if I didn't know as much as I know, I'd be getting a completely unnecessary surgery right now. The light bulb went on that said, you know, uh, employees, it's an education gap, gap. It's not a broccoli gap. It's not that, I mean, look at Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has a terrible diet and he's, you know, he's 86 right now and, and still going strong. Um, it, it, what, what causes your healthcare expenses to go up is employees not realizing where, you know, how to operate the system, where the hidden sugars are that they should be avoiding, all sorts of, you know, what, what medications are hazardous if you take them off label, uh, what surgeries are likely to be overdone. So I had the epiphany when I had this event happen to me that, that if I could teach employees that, um, that would be extremely useful and that would be a great business model. And then the other half of the epiphany is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a trivia buff. I mean, I, I've written a best-selling trivia game. I was on Jeopardy once. And so the epiphany was to put the quiz together with the employee education on this stuff and create Quizify. And that's where it came from. And that's the day job now. That's a great story. Did you have any final words that you wanted to say? Just I have a, just a word for the the folks who run the wellness industry, which is uh, please, please, please claim the reward. In the immortal words of the great philosopher Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today, Al. You are quite welcome, Laura. In addition to the questions raised about whether or not workplace wellness programs actually work, these programs raise serious privacy concerns. Dr. Deborah Peel is the founder and president of Patient Privacy Rights, which educates, collaborates, and partners with people to ensure privacy in law, policy, and technology, and maximize the benefits from the use of personal health information with consent. Dr. Peel formed PPR in 2004, and she formed the Bipartisan Coalition for Patient Privacy, which includes more than 50 national organizations, including Microsoft, in 2006. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Peel. Um, I was wondering if first, if you could give us a little bit of background on what prompted you to get into the fight for patient privacy rights. Like what was happening that got you into this area? First of all, I never thought I'd get into this area at all because uh, medicine didn't used to be this way where people didn't have privacy. It happens that I trained as a psychiatrist and a Freudian analyst and you know, and practiced for really uh, many decades. And, you know, and of course, that's the most privacy sensitive specialty in medicine, because who's going to talk to you if you're going to blab all over the place? That's a, a kind of a silly way of saying it. But trust is so important uh, between physicians, health professionals, and the people seeking help. It's, it's really an important key, not only to getting the information you really need to be able to help them the most, um, but because, you know, that kind of trust is essential for effective treatment. I mean, you, you don't get well from drugs alone, not really. I mean, despite drugs, despite all the many treatments there are, having this person on your side dedicated to you is a very powerful help in and of itself. And so anyway, I what drew me into this is 
when <laughs> long ago and far away when W, uh, George Bush was elected president in 2001, uh, the problem began. He implemented the HIPAA privacy rule that this is a kind of a weird detail, but I think it's important. He, he inherited a fully finished privacy rule from the uh, Clinton administration. So for one year, it said that patients in electronic systems had the right to give consent for the use and disclosure of their protected health information for one year. But in the year two, the amended HIPAA privacy rule was proposed and it literally took away the patient's right to control their information. Okay, why is that a big deal? That's the basis of trust, is your control over your personal information in medicine. And, and it really started 2,400 years ago with Hippocrates. The Hippocratic Oath, the key thing that Hippocrates, who was a physician, figured out was, who is going to trust me? You know, in a, in a sudden drastic situation, you know, being sick, someone that they don't know, how will they trust me? If I don't swear an oath that says, I'm, I'm here for you first, I will not reveal anything without your knowledge. So Hippocrates figured out this, this, essentially this oath to cut to the chase so that people would not be afraid to tell doctors about sensitive things that they feared or were ashamed of or you know, were painful. And, uh, and that has been the basis of the practice of medicine for millennia, you know, and in uh, the blink of an eye, the Department of Health and Human Services took that away in 2002. And so the right, your right to give consent for the use of any of your health data was put in the hands of the data holders instead. That's a big switch. That means all the hospitals, all the electronic health records, all the places where data are created those entities were given control over the most sensitive personal information about you. Okay, so here's the funny part. <laughs> it seems that the only people on the planet that notice that one sentence change in these new regulations were the Freudian analysts because that matters so much to me and to us. So we noticed it. We couldn't figure out what to do. You know, there aren't very many of us, 3,000. So we filed a federal suit against the government. The bottom line was the government's answer was, no, we're not going to reverse this because your right to privacy wasn't taken away. You just have to go find a different doctor or a different hospital. There's only one problem with that answer. There were no places you could go that would give you a right of consent, except maybe a small doctor's practice. But no, none of the None of the major health systems, pharmacies, uh, labs, none of them would give you the right of control over that sensitive information. So after the lawsuit failed, you know, we kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And, um, you know, I had, you know, enough support from family and friends to, to do this. You know, I was, I was in a unique position. I was, you know, I had help. And so it became for me a, a real moral obligation. I know about it. I know about it from the inside. I know how bad it is not to have privacy of your health records. And so 
it's one of those things where you think about, you know, if I don't do this in my life, will I regret it? Will I regret it? And, um, and that's, that's what I felt. So anyway, so we've become since then really the most prominent organization on health privacy in the world. We are still the only organization that represents the public's interest in privacy, period. And with this information, I mean, obviously, like you said, you want to preserve that relationship between the patient and the physician. Why else does this information need to be protected so closely? I mean, what happens when a bad actor does access this information? What what would they be trying to do with it? What's the problem when the health organizations and the hospitals, when they own the data versus when the patient owns it? Well, the big, oh, thank you for asking that question. Um, the big reason... Uh, all of us in, in mental health, we have all long recognized uh, in our practices that the most discriminated against diagnoses are typically mental health and addiction diagnoses. And uh, so from the beginning of my career in medicine, uh, I learned uh, why privacy was so important. The week that I hung out my shingle in the paper age, my first patients came in and several of them said to me, if I pay you cash, will you keep my records private? Yes, because even in the paper age, if insurance companies got hold of your diagnosis for a mental illness or addiction, you would get the rates raised or you would be canceled. I mean, there was massive discrimination in the insurance industry against mental illness and addiction. And here's the problem that we have. We actually have more effective treatments than most other branches of medicine. But there's so much stigma and, and discrimination attached. So the thing that most uh, reputable uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals do is first of all, see if there's a way to figure out a fee that the person can afford that would enable them not to have to use insurance. Because the insurance industry really, really discriminates against the people that are actually trying to get help. These are the ones that are motivated to manage their illnesses Here's, here was our favorite diagnosis, anxiety disorder not otherwise specified. How bland is that? <laughs> because once you put down on someone's record any type of serious diagnosis like depression, which 25% of Americans will uh, be affected by in their lifetimes, and another 25% are going to be affected by a substance abuse uh, or addiction issue, you know, we're talking about 50% of the population is going to get one of those diagnoses, which will really, really harm them. Not only will they be discriminated against by insurance companies and life insurance companies and credit companies, everybody, but they'll also be discriminated against by their employers, by their employers, because so many employers have the rights to see your records. If you're in a small business, it's pretty hard to keep that information away from the boss. Uh, but most or many, many companies are self-insured. And the self-insured companies actually have a right to see your information. And so it, it, it really screws up your chances of work. So, so I, I came at this because the privacy is really important because People need to be judged, not on their diseases. And, and here I'm talking broadly. 
not because they have a mental illness or addiction problem or heart disease or bilateral hip replacements or osteoarthritis or, you know, you name it, you know, lung conditions, cancer. Employers do not need to know any of that about you. You're supposed to be considered based on what you can do, your skills, you know, and and your knowledge, your track record. People don't deserve to be scrutinized medically by employers. Now, there are a couple of exceptions. Like if you're in a job where you uh, can affect people's lives, that's different. You know, like pilots or train engineers, where any type of work where you're responsible for somebody else's life, you know, that, that could certainly require, uh, you know, drug testing or whatever. But most of the time, if someone actually is impaired in some ways, you don't, you don't need a diagnosis. You don't need their medical records to find out. It'll, it'll show up in their work. It's not just essential for trust in physicians, but it's, it's a universal human right, universal human right to be able to control sensitive information about you. You know, I didn't know that much about human rights, but it turns out that more broadly, this, this is one of the key universal rights humans should have, the ability to draw some boundaries around what they want everyone to know versus no one to know. You know, and if you can't draw any boundaries, which is actually the situation where we are in the United States right now, you know, every kind of information about you is sucked up and sold everywhere. It's not just health data. But health data is the most valuable. You know, you can't, we can't because of the way the internet was designed, Facebook has designed things, you know, it's all been based on the business model known as surveillance capitalism, where, where the main business is sucking up and using all your data. And most of the time, you can't even detect it. You certainly can't detect it in healthcare, where there are over two million health data brokers, over 2 million. I mean, that's the most valuable data of all. So all these things really motivated me to, um, uh, to start patient privacy rights. And uh, so it turns out what I'm working on isn't even just about health. It's actually about what kind of a, what kind of a society will we, will we have if there's no privacy And I just have one last question. I wanted to talk about, you had mentioned earlier, you brought up the employers, and that's sort of how I originally got brought into this this Ah. discussion and the issue of patient privacy concerns, because Al and I had been discussing his favorite topic, which is workplace wellness programs. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love Al, because the workplace, you know, I actually got a a whole week of national TV stuff for bashing the head of CVS for you know, he was forcing all of his minimum wage employees to join a wellness program uh, and have health screening and three calls from a call center in Kansas or somewhere every year, or he was going to dock their pay a hundred dollars. What, what an out of touch, you know, outrageously insensitive person. The thing about these screening programs and the call centers are, you know, they all sell your data and, as Al, you know, should have convinced everyone by now, <laughs> you know, they don't work. 
the wellness thing is a big lie. It's, it's actually, I think that that, that language establishing wellness programs got stuck in by the insurance industry to make sure they have another business if they're forced to cut down, you know, in some other way. It's, um, it's crazy that it can't be debunked. And, and, and Al Lewis is so great at that. It's, it's just shocking that people want to believe it. But it's so easy to, to pretend, you know, patients are lazy, stupid, and fat, and they all have heart disease, diabetes, and obesity, you know, or chronic pain because it's all their fault. Well, you know, for one thing, those four categories of people that I just named, they all already have a doctor. All of those things are extremely complex diseases. These are people that have a doctor. They have a diagnosis and they're taking medicine. You know, the problem isn't a wellness program. You know, it's, it's you know, in fact, one of the interesting things is they never ask patients, you know, why it's so hard to be well or what would help them with their disease. There, there is this assumption that patients are lazy and stupid and don't care and it's their fault. But it's, it's not true. All of those diseases are complex and require real help. And so how is it that somebody in a, in a call center could possibly help you? What you actually need is more access to your physician, you know, at a lower cost. You need access and you need more help, you know, because, you know, like a fitness coach is not going to be able to cure heart disease. It's just not going to happen. You might need to exercise, but that's only a piece of it. To learn more about workplace wellness programs or to read Al Lewis's articles, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes.